is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart and the rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. We're now in the heart of summer. July 4th is upon us in the summer hours, as well as the summer heat and humidity make up our days. As the holiday comes around on Tuesday, no doubt we'll all be celebrating as a version of what everybody else does, with us in our shorts, enjoying some time outside and taking advantage of the late sunset and the cool evening. It's our heritage. But amid our celebrating, it would do well for all of us to remember the origin of this day. This is the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Of course, we all know this. This isn't some hidden aspect of the day, like the purpose of Labor Day or the actual history of Juneteenth. All of us know about 1776 and the Declaration. It was the fruit of Thomas Jefferson and those who had gathered to make a statement to the British crown, detailing American concerns about their treatment at the hands of the king. Following the Declaration, there was the Revolution, and then we became our own country. For the most part, we don't go much deeper than that. There's 1776, there's the Constitution, President George Washington, and our country is launched, or that's how it seems. Of course, we're not the only ones with an anemic imagination when it comes to history. About 15 years ago, I was in London. It had been a long time since I had visited, so I thought I'd take one of those tour buses where you hop on and hop off from place to place and have a chance to see the city where you want. At one point, having crossed the Thames, we were proceeding down one of the narrow lanes in one of the older parts of town, and the tour guide directed our attention to a small house on the right side of the street. Look to the right, she said. This is the house in which the first ambassador from the United States, John Adams, lived after America was granted its independence. Granted its independence. As if the king woke up one day and said to the parliament that he thought it might be best to go ahead and give those Americans a gift from the British crown. It wasn't quite that way. The Americans fought against the entire might of the British Empire, a bloody and dreadful struggle that went on for most a, almost a decade amid bitter opposition. The colonists on this side of the, of the Atlantic weren't taking anything for granted. The tour guide was a bit loose in her history. Alas, if only tone deafness in history class were a British problem. Most of the time, we Americans are dreadfully ill-informed of our own past, filled more with the enthusiasms of the moment than with the breadth of our heritage. We've all seen the -the on-the-spot interviews with students, among them uh, being asked questions like, who did we fight in the Spanish-American War? Or when was World War II? Only for them to be embarrassed by the answers. Unfortunately, the embarrassment is real. As a people, we have a very hard time appreciating our history and holding in mind an accurate assessment of where we've come from. This deficit makes celebrating Independence Day a tough assignment. Partly, I suppose, this has something to do with the collective nature of our country. When I grew up learning about the pilgrims and their establishment in the original colonies, I thought I was being informed about my ancestors. And in a roundabout sense, I was. A little later, I began to have a more robust view of the life of the country when I began to understand a bit more of the history of my own family. I knew my mother's parents didn't speak English in their home, and my mother's first language was German, 
That didn't seem to fit into the stories we were taught about the founding of the country. In addition, at that time, all over Southwest Oklahoma City, when I was young, there were a number of farmers who, who still spoke Czech at home and whose English was spoken with a notable accent. Those people didn't seem to fit into the story at all. I began to wonder about the pilgrims and their story. There seemed to be some kind of distance between them and me. We weren't their kind of people. And I was learning all these things about the founding of the country in a Catholic school. We were taught about the pilgrims' desire to find religious freedom and their establishment of a self-governing colony that eventually led to the Declaration of Independence and, and the Constitution and all the things that we learned were important. There was hardly a word spoken about the fact that they were radical Protestants. And there wasn't one word spoken in Catholic school about the fact that they had outlawed Catholics in their society. Freedom of the practice of religion only extended to true religion. Theirs, Catholics need not apply. But none of that was mentioned. We all learned that they were our ancestors. And of course, it was kind of true, but not exactly true. They were the founders of the country. They were dedicated to self-governance and independent living, more or less. We lived in the country they'd made, so they were our forefathers, even if they were distant from us in time and expectation. By living as Americans, we learned that we were able to receive what they had given, even if we weren't like them or had the same history as they. In fact, the history we had was whitewashed. We were never taught in any formal way about the influx of immigrants, the reshaping of the country by the arrival of the Irish in the mid-19th century, or the arrival of the flood of immigration at the turn of the 20th, and all the other dips and mounds of American history. True, we were just learning the basics, and the most basic fact, that we had a country that was founded by those seeking their own place and their own ways, and that learning about that was a fair beginning, but it certainly left a lot out. Which is why I think we have such a gigantic deficit when it comes to appreciating the great historical sweep of the country. It's because so many of us are left out of it. Our own families have no stake in so many of the great issues and, and actions and dates we all have to learn in history class. And because we don't have a stake in them, we're not very much animated to pay attention to what's being taught. When we're asked to learn about the British Empire, the American trek to the West, or the Emancipation Proclamation— there's not very much connection to our own stories. We're not affected by what's being talked about. And because the place for us to stand is shaky, we're left memorizing dates and places and people who might as well be items in a novel rather than our own heritage. Not to mention the fact that lots of history is simply left out. In my world history class in the 10th grade, for example, we spent nine weeks learning about the medieval world and in the entire span of the class, the teacher not, never once mentioned the Catholic Church. Now, true, my high school was not the apex of college prep, and nobody there was being prepared to tackle Ph.D. courses. But not talking about the church in medieval Europe is something like teaching chemistry and never getting around to talking about the elements. And in all the history I was taught, there was never a mention of the Spanish Empire in North and South America. The history of anything south of the Rio Grande was simply blanked out as if it didn't exist. There were no connections made. It's no wonder we don't know much of anything. It's hard to learn what we can't relate to. In fact, the great series of upsets moving through society right now have everything to do with this anxiety. 
1619 Project and, and the concern about white nationalism are both quasi-movements dealing with recasting and teaching of history so that it reflects aspects of what went on in the country uh, that we haven't heard about. Now, whether they're going about it the right way, and I don't think they are, or whether they're movements far exceeding concerns about history, and they certainly are that, as movements, they're playing into the vast ignorance of history that must be addressed in some form. All of us are less if we don't know our own stories. We have to learn what they are and how to tell them. And just as importantly, we should learn if the stories that are told are the correct ones. All this being said, however, we did learn some of the basics about how we might live as one people in our country. It's of summary importance for all of us to know where the country came from and how we fit in, no matter how we arrived or when. After all, after all, well, hardly one in 10,000 of us has a familial stake in the pilgrim's arrival, and not many more of us have some kind of connection to the revolution and to the establishment of the country. The huge majority of us came later and made our way as best we could amidst how the country was. What all of us learn should be comprehensive enough to include the basics of our national life, so it might be something we can all celebrate, even if it is deficient in the particulars of our familial history. And here's the nexus of events we should focus on. When describing the basis of the Declaration of Independence, the founders were appealing to an idea of human life and dignity they claimed was self-evident. This was a bold assertion because it was hardly self-evident, and their claim was not backed up by the thought of or practice of governments throughout the world. These men, gathered to assert their rights in the face of the English king, were trying to make a clear and, and bold declaration what the American understanding was about all of these things that was as unique as it was noble. And they began by clarifying their position. In the part of the declaration we see cited over and over again, they wrote, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed, unquote. And they wrote after this, following their assertions, um, uh, independence isn't simply growing tired of authority or becoming exasperated with being ignored. Instead, it has to do with the nature of people and the appreciation of what it means to be human. The founders were interested in making a case for themselves and for their experience of their humanity. It was a novel argument, and from a Catholic perspective, it made a lot of people nervous from the Pope on down. Now, to be fair to those who first heard these words, whether they were in Parliament and the King's Court, or in the Vatican and among the Cardinal's Assembly, this was a new way of framing the conversation about human life and human rights. It was an argument little heard before. These founders were appealing to a history of English philosophy, and they reflected a good deal of English history not shared by the rest of the world. These founders insisted that human beings were endowed with fundamental rights which no one could take away, and these rights accrued to every individual simply because he was a person. And since they did accrue, when they were violated, the violations of those rights took away from what was human, and therefore they were wrong. It was a high standard to observe. 
just so we can get some perspective on how this may have sounded at the time, we should remember that most of the world only got around to talking like this and mentioning fundamental human rights and ascend that, that rights that are essential to the politics of nation. They only began to mention those in the 1960s. Those who reflected on people being governed did not often speak of rights as fundamental or as inhering in human beings across the boundaries of space and politics. That the founders of our country could do so in 1776 was groundbreaking. More than that, it seemed perfectly clear to them. Now, Catholics had a hard time with this way of speaking because of two factors. The first was that there had not been a great deal of thought given to the definition of people in individual terms. That is, in the political sense, the concerns of the church had generally been described as a matter of governance and governmental processes, rather than in terms of what individuals did or didn't do. That's not as odd as it sounds. There are no absolute individuals in the world, as if a person was completely isolated in history or family or identity from anything else. In general Catholic thinking, a person was a member of a family or a citizen of a country or a participant in a culture as much as he was an individual with separate, isolatable characteristics. It was a different kind of thinking to imagine and define the attributes of a man completely apart from all of the connections that had defined him. It was especially new to build an entire governance structure from the definition of a person in isolation. To Catholic ears, it sounded like chaos. This is what the founders were appealing to. If there are attributes of individuals, these are given by God as the product of the creation. Individuals then have the responsibility to guard and to exercise these attributes in self-government. It's all straightforward and simple in their minds. Of course, they overlooked the long history of royalty and the many intricacies of nations as they made their case to the king. But they were revolutionaries and were not bothered by the complications of previous peoples, They wanted to make their case for themselves, and it was a good case. They acknowledged that there was a human nature that had been established by the Creator. Human beings were entrusted with rights because of the humanity they embodied, and the existence of these rights brought with them the expectation of their exercise as well as the permanency of their presence. Since they were divine rights, they couldn't be infringed or altered, only directed by others. The exercise of these rights was the foundation of the claim for independence, which is the key. Once the presumptions are granted, all of the conclusions follow. The cry for separation from England was something more than just an exercise for the sake of politics. That is, it was something more than a group of men who who had banded together in order to wrest control from those currently in charge so that they could take charge themselves. No, their coming together was the exercise of their humanity in the face of conditions that debased that humanity. They were appealing as men, not as supplicants, but as residents of the world, not as exceptional citizens. We're most forcefully struck in our day and time by the affirmation of rights. It is just as powerful today to acknowledge fundamental rights accruing to individuals as as it was in their time. While we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, it is startling to hear that the fundamentals of our living as a person in our day-to-day lives is a part of our endowment as human beings, which means this endowment is not consigned to us. By the way, the government is structured by what we've done or not done or by what our status is in our lives. We are endowed with these rights as the work of God 
and they are not to be infringed. Those who do infringe them do not acknowledge them as endowed by God. But we who know them, to, we who know them to be this kind of gift, we're emboldened and convicted to recognize and guard them and above all, to assert them. Such an acknowledgement makes for a powerful connection to God, as well as a rich stake in the concourse of the politics of the moment. Unspoken in the declaration is the implicit affirmation that a right implies responsibility. Nobody can recognize a right and then deny he's responsible for its exercise. That is, if a person is to say we have a right to clean water, to take a somewhat minor version of rights talk, so popular today, in which there is a claim to hundreds of fundamental rights, which begs the question of what fundamental means. But to say a person has a right to clean water, then it's not enough to claim the right. We're made responsible to do our best to exercise it. If I claim it for myself, I also have to accept the responsibility to make it happen for another. In fact, the founders were concluding they had the responsibility to become independent precisely because these rights required it of them. No one was going to be able to exercise this right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness until the abuses of the king were refuted. This is also startling to us in our day and time. We're happy to enter into this language pattern and talk about rights until we multiply them like the gnats on a summer evening. But if they're fundamental to our humanity, it means we can't stop until they're capable of being exercised by everyone for everyone. We don't usually have that kind of courage. The founders did. And we should remember they ended the Declaration of Independence by pledging their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. They put everything on the line, including not just their honor in terms of what other people might think of them, but their status as men created by God and tasked to carry out God's implicit will. They were serious. It took a very long time for Catholic thinkers to become comfortable with thinking and talking in the same manner as our founders. As late as the 1940s, there were those in the Vatican who had their doubts that Americans could ever be good Catholics. Their notions of individuality seemed to deny the community of Catholic life. American was a code word for Protestant in the Vatican, and that was a word no one wanted to use, whether directly or in code, when being around the Vatican. All the talk of independence seemed to throw the world open to chaos especially in terms of defining the sovereignty of the government in terms of the consent of the governed. In the ages leading up to this claim, in which there was little basic literacy, hardly any travel, almost no strong connections among the people in the area, and no clear agreements about what it meant to be a people with a common heritage and a common history, it was hard for the leaders at the Vatican to know what the consent of the governed meant, much less what it would look like. They thought it sounded like a recipe for the world to slip off its track. Remember, it did slip off its track in France during their revolution. This was the second concern of the churchmen who first considered these claims. They looked out and saw the potential of abuse as much as they saw the possibility of hope. The Declaration of the Rights of Man in France was, in fact, a recipe for oppression and murder, murder on the scale not seen before. Plus, once a right is claimed as an obvious attribute of being human, at what point is there to have a final list? Are there only a few or more than a few, or perhaps a near infinite number waiting to be identified and claimed? These concerns occurred to the churchmen who watched these events unfold in their time. 
They didn't quite know what to do, and it took them almost 200 years to become comfortable with it. But just remember, one of the greatest horrors of the 20th century was so perpetrated by a democratic country, Germany, and by people claiming that by their rights to be German. The claim to their rights and the urging of revolutionary change has only increased in clamor as the years have gone by. Today, we're not being forced with exploring how it is not the case that a child has the right to slice off his own organs and reshape his body according to his ideas about himself. We can find some sympathy for the cardinals and popes who didn't know what to make of the American experiment. Even we, even we didn't know what to make of it exactly, and it resulted in a war that took 700,000 lives in battle, the Civil War. Finally, we should make one other word uh, note of the, in the Declaration that no one pays attention to. It is the word Congress. The people of the colonies had come together to effect their business as a people in a direct, structured way in order to achieve what was important to them. These authors of the, edu- of the dedication were not a group of hotheads struggling to justify their opinions as they circulated clandestine posters advertising their positions. They were duly appointed by the body formed of representatives of the entire colonial presence. This declaration was posited to, br- to bring and to speak as a collective voice. That it did so was itself an accomplishment. So, all that being said, here's to the founding. We pause on the fourth, or at least we ought to, to honor those who had an idea about life and government, an idea that changed the world. That we've been brought into that change is worthwhile repeating. Maybe we ought to be grateful for it. Back in just a moment. segment, Faith in Verse, with a poem today called The Seasons. The seasons establish themselves as vacation visitors, arriving more or less expectedly at about the right time. Whether days or weeks, delayed or late, we know they are sure, passing in through the opened doors of habits and climes. Genesis assures us all was set in place securely, the planets in their places and the earth's turning gyres. We can trust all God's certain plans and schedules securely. The moon will will rise and set on time, as will the sun's fires. But just because we have our dates set with calendar precision and anticipate what to expect according to our time, cannot simply cross out a day and render our decision for how to dress well or what to expect will be fine. We have to humble ourselves, keep to the truth we observe, and never forget to check the air and read the skies, for no matter what we exercise or control, we serve, first of all, the truth of all that out there among us lies. That's the seasons.
we strive to be able to dig down a little deeper into the events of the day. And we hope that that is uh, helpful and productive. That's what we'll be doing in the weeks to come. I hope that as we do, you'll be able to join us then. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.